We all know, it goes without saying, that if a person comes into direct contact with a dead body, they become impure, Tumas Mace. But here's an interesting point that the Midrash al mentions, that the dead body itself is not technically Tomei. That might sound like a very strange suggestion, but there are a few considerations. Like, for example, the story with Elisha and the son of the Shunamis woman where he resurrected the child. Now there's a question about whether that child is impure or not. And we'll have the same question when it comes to Tchias HaMesim. Are the people who arise from the dead at the time of Mashiach, will they be in a state of tumor of impurity? And to try and understand this, we're going to look at a Gemara at the end of Masech uh, Nida, where you have this conversation between the people of Alexandria and Rabbi Yashur ben Hanania, and they ask what the Gemara calls klotzkashes, but they are interesting questions. Lloyd's wife had turned into a pillar of salt. Is that a normal way that it can transmit impurity? This Shunamis, the, the, well, the child of the Shunamis, when he is resurrected, is he now Tomei? Does he have to go through a purification process? And Tachias HaMesim, when we, uh, people are resurrected, will they have to go through a purification process? Now, we'll analyze each of these three cases and ask why it is that they had to question three different times. We'll initially suggest one answer for Lot's wife. We'll reject that and say it doesn't fit the context. And instead, we'll see that the question is really, is a pillar of salt the same as a dead person? We'll see that there are two components that we have to look at when we examine Tumas Mace. Is it the, the fact that the Neshama has left, or is it the fact that the body is now considered a dead body? And based on that, we'll, say, we'll analyze all of these conversations. Now, in the case of the son of the Shunamis, the question is a little bit more intriguing because read the story and you'll see that he didn't even resurrect as himself. It's that Elisha imbued him with some of his own spirit. So now we have the question of this person was really dead. The Neshama left never came back. So what is his exposure? And then, of course, when it comes to Tchias HaMesim, we have to understand how does Tchias HaMesim work? Is Tchias HaMesim the reconstitution of a person from scratch, or are we building on some existing component? And then we have the question, the piece that existed and was dead now touches the part of the person that is rebuilt, and maybe that makes them impure tummy. We're also going to see that there's a, a variation of how exactly that last case is supposed to be read, and perhaps it's only actually talking about the generation who were in the desert, where there's a debate between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Eliezer, whether or not they deserved Chiasamesim at all, and the Gemara uh, 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 deals with that too. And lastly, we're going to analyze why there's Dafka, the people of Alexandria, who had these questions because there's something about their reality that they actually wanted to project onto this conversation. So there's quite a lot of information. I think the easiest way to focus on it is to know that there are three different elements we want to look at, three different um, components of how tumor may in fact be shared, and it all really becomes quite neat and easy to understand then. So our parasha speaks about the halachas of Tumas Meis. So the Yalkut Shimoni brings on the Pasuk, that any person who touches the corpse of a, of a human being becomes impure for seven days, and then they have to go through the process of the Paraduma. Says the Medrash, the Torah is very clear that it's the person who touches the dead body who becomes impure, implying that the dead body itself is not technically Tomei. Sounds like a strange suggestion. And then it continues. So the, the Medrash then expands it and says that if a person touches a dead body, they become impure. But the son of the Shunamis, who himself died and then was resurrected, he's actually not Tame in and of himself, except for circumstance. What's the circumstance? Shunamis Kol Shiva. 
So what happened was, here's the son of the Shunami who died. So whoever was in the house was now impure for a week because they were in the same area under the same roof as a dead body. And then, when the Ben Hashanamis came back to life, he was in a 100% case of purity to the extent that right there and then he could have walked into the base and brought a korban. But the family then touched him. And they, because they had touched a dead body, or been in the proximity of a dead body, they were Tommy. Now that they touched the child, the child became Tommy. Says the Medrash, This is the source of the expression that says, That which made you impure could not make me impure, and yet ironically, you could make me impure. Okay, very fascinating suggestion. So now we got to just see why did they have to bring the story of the Ben Hashanamis? Really, the point is that somebody who touches a dead body is Tomei, not the dead body himself. So we could just say simply, that the, the flow is, once you've made a broad statement that a dead body is not technically Tomei, then when you look at the specific story of the son of the Shunamis, you can say, well, yes, a story of a person who actually went through that experience and it didn't affect the person to become Tomei. Which is incredibly ironic because he was actually dead, so dead that he could make other people Tomei and yet that didn't affect him. So that solidifies what the Medrash is saying that a Negea B'Meis is Tomei not the Meis himself. But it's not so simple. Because when you read it in the complete flow of this medrash, seems a little bit odd, right? You say the person who touches a dead body is impure, and then so too the ben Hashanamis who wasn't somebody who touched the dead body, he himself was impure. So Deresh Biur, need to understand. The fact that the that the Pasuk said the person who touches a dead body becomes Tomei, Lo Madni. From that we learned should be as the Medrash said right at the beginning, that the only way that a person becomes Tomei is from touching the dead body, which excludes the body itself from being Tomei. But when you now introduce over and above that the story of the son of the Shunamis, it's a very strange story. You're telling me when something, when a person has died, whoever is under the same roof or touches them is Tomei, and now you're talking about a person who's no longer dead, he's come back to life. So, really, what you would have expected the Medrash to say would have been something like this. That anybody who touches a dead body is Tomei. That should have been the teaching. That the son of the Shunamis, once he's alive again, cannot now make people Tomei. Which would have implied that if somebody should touch the Ben Shunamis, give him a big hug now that he is alive again, they don't become Tomei, obviously, because the Torah said that you only become Tomei from touching a dead body. And he's not a mace, he's alive. So the, the, the comparison doesn't seem to really add up. The Magan Avram has a pirush on the Medrash. And in his pirush, he mentions called Zayis Ranon. He mentions over there that there's a practical application over here. 
He says practically what we should be able to learn from the Ben Hashanamis is that when people in the future, in the time of Tchias HaMesim, come alive again, just like the Ben Hashanamis was not Tameh, they also would not be Tameh and they won't need the Paraduma ritual in order to purify them. So now it actually seems like, according to what the Magen Avram is saying, that there's one lesson over here. What's the lesson? That the dead don't make, the dead are not Tomei. What does it mean the dead are not Tomei? That when that dead person is now no longer dead and they come alive, so they're not, now not Tomei. We see it illustrated in the story of the Ben Hashanamis, but we can apply it also to Tchias HaMesim. So what's the message? That the Mes himself is not Tomei. So therefore, because the dead person is not technically Tomei, when the dead person becomes alive, he doesn't have to be Mistaher. Nobody has to purify him because he was never Tomei in the first place. And that's actually what the Medrash was first saying. When it said, it's of no relevance when a person is dead that they're not Tomei. What's the difference? We're only interested in those who come into contact with them. But the minute you plug it into the thought of and then you say that the Tomei has an impact on that Mace, that person himself, when he comes to life, he is going to be fine, not Tomei. And and then, obviously, just to kind of develop and prove the point, we use the example of the Ben Hashanamis. But it actually sounds from the Mogan Avram that the main thrust of the Medrash is to tell us about Chiyas HaMesim. That only Negea B'Mes is Tamei, not the Mes himself. Now, there's a question that's going to arise from this. Avol Fizek Kosher. If that is true, if the Medrash is telling us very clearly that the dead person himself is not Tameh, and therefore in Tchias HaMesim doesn't have to go through a purification process, so what have you added to the story by giving me a single example of Ben Hashanamis? You've made the principle clear. You've told me that a person who arises from the dead is not Tameh because Ein Meis Tameh. So to understand what we need the added information of the Ben Hashanam is for, we're going to look at the Gemara at the end of Masech Nida, where we have this conversation between the people of Alexandria and Rabbi Shavon Hananya. They asked him the following question. They asked three klotzkashes. Number one, Ishtay Shaloit, Masha Tatamei. So, first question is, Lloyd's wife turned into a pillar of salt. If you touch that pillar of salt, do you become Tomei, like touching a dead body, or not? Said to them, Rabbi Shubhachananya, So he replied to them, that a dead body, a corpse, is what causes somebody to become Tomei, and not a pile of salt, regardless of how that pile of salt was formed. Next question they asked, Ben Shunamis, Mahu Shiyetamei? So then they asked the question about the son of the Shunamis, Mahu, what is the halocha? Can he, does he convey impurity to other people? So to them, he said, That the truth is, only a dead body can confer impurity, and not a living person, very much like the Yalkut Shimonim. And then the last question was, When people are resurrected in the future, will they need to have the ashes and water of the Mechatos sprinkled on them, or not? 
So, Amalahen, to that he said, When they come back to life, then we'll be wise, and others will examine the circumstances, and we'll work it out then. Ikadamri, or a variant of how he, exactly he said it was, that when Moshe comes back with them, then we'll analyze and see what's happening over here. So the first thing we have to know is that even though we're talking about Anshay Alexandria, we don't really know if they have any credibility. And the Gemara, or the Bryce at least, says that they're asking Klotzkashes. So why should we even consider this? Because we know that if the Gemara discusses it, it has some intellectual value. It has some input that is relevant to our conversation. Over Hakdim. We've explained multiple times. Any time that a question, answer, or debate is recorded in the Gemara, even if it includes other people who are not scholars, even in even people who rejected the validity of Teresh Alexandria, or in this case, where it was the people, Jewish people from the community of Alexandria, which is this big Jewish community. The fact that the Gemara gives them the time of day indicates that their argument has a logical basis that even fits according to the logic of Torah. And even on those occasions where the Gemara says that it was a ludicrous uh, suggestion, argument, or question, like here, where we say it's divrei burois, we're not saying, oh, they have absolutely no logical basis at all. Because the sages of Israel didn't waste their time with fools, and they certainly didn't record their interactions with fools. They would never have included these conversations in the Gemara if they had no value. Especially when you consider that generally in the Gemara, if somebody said something that was self-evident, they would attack that and say, Shita, it's self-evident. Why are you saying it? What, what does it come to teach us? And they don't do that in these cases. That implies that these stories have value and we should be learning from them. The very fact that such great sages engaged with these people and had full-on discussion, conversation, and debate with them, and they recorded those conversations in Teresh Muchoch that teaches us that tells you very clearly that these conversations have value not only in general rational thinking but even in Torah thinking. And therefore, so therefore these conversations help us to understand the context of whichever particular issue and halacha was being discussed better. So simply put, we need to look at this story, and even though we'll dismiss the questions as different burois, we're not going to dismiss them entirely. They're going to help us to understand the nature of how Thomas Mace works. In fact, an interesting practical thing, if a person's learning those parts of Torah that talk about these debates, even debates with heretics, you still say because it is 100% part of Torah. Even though you see that this b'risa calls it klotzkashias, or ignorant questions. That's because there's an element within the question that is foolish, as we'll see later. We're going to identify, at least in two of the questions, very clearly what the foolish element is. Or maybe it just doesn't match up. It's because like, why are you mentioning this here? It's not really on this subject. 
And of course, it's also a relative term that we call it foolish compared to the great sage that you're dealing with. When you hear Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania respond to them, then you realize, oh my, <laughs> the question that they asked was really coming from a place of incredible ignorance, but not enough that it should be dismissed altogether. This is information the Gemara felt relevant for us to learn. So let's learn it and let's see what we can take from this that will help us understand Thomas Mace better. So we're going to actually see this very clearly in our case. Look at that. Question number three, even though it is called Divrei Burois, the question about Chiyas HaMesim remains unanswered. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania wasn't able to just dismiss it. He left and said, we'll see. We'll see when, it, when the time comes. When you look at all the Mephoshim, you're going to see that they analyze not only the response of Rabbi Shur ben Hananya, which is wisdom, but even the questions of the Ansha Alexandria, which is foolishness or ignorance. And lastly, there are many, many other proofs that we could bring. We've only listed three over here. And the third is that in order to respond to the question, actually, there's a necessity to bring up a, um, a, a source in Torah in order to be able to verify and to be able to answer that question. So if that's the case, and we need to pay attention over here, we're going to take the story and we're going to analyze seven different things that immediately jump out at you as questions on the story. And even though some of them appear on the discussion, even though some of these questions might appear to be quite uh, innocent, innocuous, but as we'll see during the course of the Sikha, each question leads us to understand another dimension of what's going on over here. So, seven things that we can analyze about these so-called ignorant questions that the people of Alexandria answered. Number one, Why did they ask the second question about the Ben Hashanamis who was resurrected by Elisha? Does he, um, in, in, does he convey impurity after he's alive again? Didn't Rabbi Yishu ben Hananya already answer that when he spoke about Lot's wife? Because he told them, He explained, only an actual dead body conveys impurity. So he's already tackled this question. Surely they could have used a little bit of logic, a little bit of um, lateral thinking, and said, just like a pillar of salt is not a dead body and cannot make you tame, a human living person clearly is not a dead body and obviously shouldn't make you tame. Why ask that question? Base. Second question. Ben Ashunamis is not the only case of a child who was resurrected in Tanakh. Many of the commentaries ask this question. Surely, logically, you always look in Tanakh for the first occasion that you could use to either make a point, prove an item, or in this case, ask a question. So seeing as Eliyahu already, prior to Elisha, had resurrected a child, surely they should have asked the question from that case. It comes first. Question three. Gimel. His response to the third question is very unusual. When they come back to life, then we will explore and come up with wisdom in order to assist them. Or we'll wait for Moshe Rabbeinu to come back and help us. 
im lo yoda lo hashiv. If Rabbi Shubhan Hananya did not know what the halacha is, that's why he's saying we'll wait and see. Loma lo yona eni yodea b'chiyotze boze. Kimidose shechocha mamasha lo yishama im lo yishamaita meida leemes v'chune. Why didn't he just say simply, I don't know? As Pirkei Avos tells us, that is the sign of a wise person to acknowledge what he doesn't know and to admit to the truth. So why does he say, when the time comes, then we'll work it all out? Question number four. Why is he saying, when Moshe Rabbeinu comes, then we'll have the answer? Why doesn't he say, Anavi's job usually is to answer these difficult questions. So why don't we say, Eliyahu is going to answer the question. Hey, Question five. Also, he leaves it kind of hanging according to the second version. When Moshe Rabbeinu comes, yes, what will happen when Moshe Rabbeinu comes? The first version said, when they arise from the dead, then we'll have the wisdom to tell what they should do. So you should have said, or he should have said a similar thing, right? According to the second variation. When Moshe Rabbeinu comes, Moshe Rabbeinu will answer. He doesn't say this. says, when Moshe Rabbeinu comes, dot, dot, dot. Why the emphasis that when Moshe Rabbeinu comes back with them? We're talking about Chiyas HaMesim over here. Okay, so the implication is that all the people who deserve Chiyas HaMesim come back. That's fine. Why say Dafka when Moshe is with them? And last question is, Notice that there's a difference in the style of how the two first questions are posed compared to the third. The first two questions are, Mahu What is the halacha? Does Eishas Loit make people tamay? What is the halacha? Does the Ben Ashunamis make other people tamay? Whereas of Ashayla Ashlishis, the third question doesn't ask whether or not they can make others tamay. It's a totally different question. Do they or don't they require the ritual of purity? And not even not even the normal question, the, the, the phraseology that you would use when you're asking an halacha question. What is mahu? What is the halacha? Why doesn't it say that? So in order to understand this, the first thing we have to analyze is that in, in working out what makes a person tame when they pass away, we have to say, is it the fact that the neshama has left or is it the fact that the body is a dead body? Might sound like semantics. It has very relevant uh, implications. So, there are two factors that determine Tumas Meis. The first thing is the obvious. The Neshama leaves, and so now you have a dead body. It's an unanimated body. The second thing is that the body itself has to be a dead body. And you'll see there's enough community halacha from both perspectives. Right? Each one is going to have details and halachic implications. Generally speaking. If I say, look from the perspective, the first perspective, what is it that causes Tumah? The leaving of the Neshama, the leaving of life. Well, that implies that life has to leave the entire body. And if it's only part of the body that is, for example, God forbid, paralyzed, or as we'll see in a moment, dismembered, that is not Silukachayas. From that perspective, it is not Tuma, it's certainly not Tumas Meis until the whole body has lost all of its Chayas. So if God forbid somebody had severed a limb and there it is kind of hanging loose and it's no chance of recovery, it's still not Tame yet. And the person is definitely not Tame because it's not Silukachayas. Altogether. 
So if that's what determines Tumas Mace, then the only time that someone can be Tumay Mace is when the Chayas has left completely. We need to keep that in mind. Number two, Binyan Asheni, when I look from the perspective that it has to be a Guf Mace, an actual physical body that is dead, so then that means the Guf Man Nechshav Dafka Mashab that means that the form of the body still looks like a living person. It just happens to be dead, which means practical halacha. If a person was cremated and lost the form of a human being, that is not metame. It cannot convey impurity. And the many, many other halachas. But that's really the point that we have to be aware of, and that's going to help us understand what the three questions are all about. Are we looking simply at siluk hachayas, in which case that's the siluk hachayas altogether? Are we looking at whether the body is a guf mace? We need to understand. So, this is the distinction between the three questions. So, let's look at the first question. Does Lloyd's wife now, as a pillar of salt, cause tumor or not? <clears throat> the pastor's the question is, We do understand that in order for her to become a pillar of salt, there had to be a miracle. Now, miracles themselves also have two possible ways. Now, what we're about to propose is a suggestion of what the question of the Ansh Alexandria may have been. By the end of this, we'll illustrate that this is not actually the question, but the information we gather from this will be relevant for our conversation. So perhaps their whole question hinges on the nature of the miracle. What do we mean? So there are two types of miracles. Shnei snugim benisim. Aleph, one kind of miracle is One kind of miracle is that the nature of something used to be one way and now a miracle occurs and the nature changes. Here's an example. When the nace of Moshe Rabbeinu's hand turning white with Saras after he spoke what they considered inappropriate words about the Jewish people. So now that became the nature of his hand. His hand is now mitzoras. It's actually got Saras. From that moment and onwards, it's now the natural state of his hand to have tzaras and it should need to heal. And therefore, in order for him to, in no time, go back to being a healthy hand, required a new miracle. The new miracle of restoring the health of the hand. That's one kind of miracle where the miracle replaces the default nature. Then there's another kind of miracle. The other way is that there is the nature that remains the nature. And at the moment, the miracle is forcing its way over the nature to change things. And the second the miracle stops, the nature will go back. For example, here's two examples. The nature of water is to flow. Kriyas Yamsuf interferes temporarily with that nature and gets the water to stand up. But it's temporary. How do you revert the water back to where it belongs? Stop the miracle. The miracle has not replaced the nature. Well, here's another example. In the plague of blood in Mitzrayim, the water was still water that at the moment was being interfered with to be blood. 
Every single day of the week of this Makkah, there was that ongoing interference to keep changing the water into blood. As soon as the miracle was over, it went back to water. And that's why, for example, you could have a Jewish person and an Egyptian person drink out of the same pitcher. One would have blood and one would have water because for that one, the miracle is happening to change the water into blood. And for this person, it's not happening, so the water remains water. And that's why we don't find anywhere that after the miracle was over, they ha- after the, the plague was over, that they had to go start digging around for new wells. It just, everything went back to normal. So those are the two ways. The miracle changes the nature permanently, or the miracle consistently interferes with the nature, but the nature remains the same. So now this is the question. Possibly that's the question of the Ancha Alexandria. What is the status of Lloyd's wife? What kind of a miracle happened to her? And based on that, what is her halachic status to be able to share Tumor with other people? So, now, if we go with the first opinion, which says that the miracle, or the first possibility, where a miracle overrides nature, now this is the nature. So now it used to be a body, and now she is a pillar of salt. She'll never go back. The miracle has changed and reconstituted her, so she's not a body. And we've already learned that only a body is capable of tumma, right? Because that was the thing. It needs to be a goof mace. So just like a cremated person is no longer a body, a pillar of salt person is no longer a body. But if you're going to argue that the Abish is consistently keeping her body in a state of salt, but really by nature it's still a body, then, which means that fundamentally she is still a corpse, just currently presenting as a pile of salt. Then going back to what we said, that a goof mace, a dead body, exudes impurity, she should be metam'a, she should be able to convey impurity to others. So maybe that's the explanation of the question of the Ancha Alexandria. The only thing is that it's not a full explanation. It's not a good enough explanation why. Because the context over here is that the people of Alexandria are trying to understand the nature of Tumas Meis. And according to this explanation, they're actually trying to understand the nature of the miracle that occurred to the wife of Lloyd, which is a very specific case. And then that would imply that they've actually asked three questions and they're not all on the same subject. Some are on the subject of how Tumas Mace works and this one is on the subject of how miracles work and that's not logical. So we actually need to find something in their question about the Aishas Loit that speaks to the heart of how Tumas is expressed or shared. So therefore let's explain it a little better. Up until this point, we said that their whole question is looking from the perspective of needing a goof mace in order for there to be tumma. And then we wanted to know, based on what kind of miracle happened, whether or not she qualifies as a goof mace. Let's look at it now from a different angle, because the other issue that we had to con- consider is the silukachayus, the silukaneshama. So let's look from that angle. Okay, so the one possibility is that we say, look, we've already seen that until the whole life leaves the entire body, there's not too much mace. If a person has this dismembered limb, it doesn't affect the entire body. 
Oi, or do we look at it? So is the leaving of the neshama what makes a person tame? Or is the leaving of the neshama what makes the body now susceptible to become tame? Big difference. That means Tumas Mes Misab Mitzalagufshinistalkumenanshama Because that would then mean that Tumas Mes is something that happens to the body in the absence of a soul, and that of course would imply that the body itself becomes Tame. Just to understand what's going on over here, we're trying to determine, is the leaving of the neshama the cause of Tumah, or is the leaving of the neshama a catalyst that now causes the body to become susceptible to Tumah? We're going to see two examples of how this works in a positive side. The question of whether the action is what achieves the mitzvah, or if the action is a catalyst for the mitzvah to be achieved in the long term. So firstly, the mitzvah smila. When a person has a breast, what, what is the goal? Is the goal to have done the action of circumcision once off? Or is the action the result thereof, that this person will never be an RL ever again in his life? Something which is delved into in great detail in halacha, and if you think about it, there will automatically be practical considerations, like a person who has some kind of a reversal surgery, for example. So have they done the mitzvah, or is it something that has to continue over the course of time? So we're asking a similar question over here. Is the, the departure of the neshama that single action that makes the difference to the body, or is the departure of the neshama just to open a gateway that now the body will have susceptibility to tumor, and the body itself will be he has another example. When it comes to the mitzvah that for either birds or chayos that you have to cover their blood after you shech them, there is the same question. Is the mitzvah to physically put some sand over the blood? Again, then when you go home, if that blood gets kicked off, uh, that sand gets kicked off or blown off by the wind, it's irrelevant. You did what you had to do. Or is the goal that the blood should remain covered, which means that your responsibility extends indefinitely until such time as that blood has been absorbed or eaten or whatever it is. There too, we find that there are many ways in which it could impact halacha in a very practical sense. So therefore, now we get what their question is. Mahu, what is the halacha about this Aisha's Lloyd, whether or not she will express or share impurity to other people? It's based on this question. Is the silicon hashama the moment of Tumah, or the fact that there has to be a body which could then be contaminated, that that's the issue? If in order for there to be tuma, there has to be an actual physical dead body. And all the departure of the neshama does is causes the body to now be dead. Then it's clear. Lloyd's wife is not going to create tumor because she is not. Because she is not a dead body. She's a pile of salt. But if what causes tumor is the absence of an ishama, then well, then she should convey impurity because the fact is her neshama left. That's their question. Is the determining factor the absence of a neshama, or is the determining factor the presence of a dead body? Oh, 
he says to them, you're getting caught up in semantics. This is why it's an ignorant question. The bottom line is, the Torah says, that you have to touch a dead body. A dead body is metami, not a pillar of salt. Meaning, the fact that he didn't get to the details of those specifics, is it siluk achayos that counts, or is it a guf mace that counts? And he just said simply to them, a mace, not a pillar of salt, that implies, First thing he's saying is, your question about the miracle is a moot point. It's irrelevant. It makes no difference to us how she became a pillar of salt. The fact is, she's a pillar of salt. Likewise, it makes no practical difference to us if the absence of the neshama is a causation of the possibility of impurity, or if it is the reason that there's impurity. Regardless of all these fancy ideas that you have brought to the table, it's actually all burois, it's all nonsense, because the bottom line is you need to have a dead body in order for there to be tumma, and here there's not a dead body. How this person got to this point is actually irrelevant. So, when he says he's not saying you need the body to be dead. Well, that we know. Instead, what Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya is highlighting here is that the whole conversation is a non-starter. As long as you don't have a physical body, that can be related to Tumah. A pillar of salt, if it hadn't come from a human being, would you be asking this question? Does it have any relationship with impurity? None whatsoever. So your question is a non-starter question. You're trying to be fancy by working out how she got to this point. It's irrelevant. The fact is, she is in a state of a pillar of salt, which has nothing to do with the laws of Tumah. Even if you're going to say that the fundamental reason for Tumah is absence of an Neshama. Yes, absence of an Neshama from a human body. Not absence of an Neshama from a pile of salt. Now we understand why the Gemara calls these ignorant questions. Fundamentally, independently, the questions are based on very sound halachic questions. Issues that should be discussed. The reason it's called Burois is because it's not going to make a difference to the bottom line. The bottom line is outside of that whole conversation. Brilliant points, completely irrelevant to this conversation. Once he told them that, they still had another question. Ben Shunamis Maushe What about the son of the Shunamis that was resurrected by Elisha? Does he then spread Tumah? So now Shaila Zoi Rakmitsadin in Silakanashama. Here you cannot have the debate. Is the question about whether it's a goof mace? Because he's not a goof mace. He's living again. So the only angle that you could ask this question is at the time when his Nashama left, did that make him Tame? And the fact that now it's come back. So, he's Tomei. So, it's that Guf Sheikh is if you're looking from the body perspective, well, he's not a pillar of salt and he hasn't been cremated. So his body is a body, but it's a living body now. So the question is, the question is, the fact that temporarily his neshama left, how does that affect it? 
אם הטומה שמצד הסדק הקודם נזבט לקיים שעת השוב יש לחייס והוא חי, do we say that it's irrelevant that previously he was dead, now he's alive. The only reason they would have been tumor was because of Siluk HaChayus, but now there's return of the Chayus, so he's fine. Or is there for some reason a lingering tumor despite the fact that he's come back to life? Now, in order to understand this, and this will automatically explain why we're using this example and not the example of Eliyahu, you have to remember the details of the story of how Elisha brought him back to life. It's extremely relevant. Look at what the Pasuk tells us about how Elisha brought him back to life. He lay on top of the child. He put his mouth on his mouth. And he put his eyes on his eyes and his hands on his hands. He crouched over them. And the child warmed up again. And he sneezed seven times. And he opened his eyes. So what's the significance of that description. It's not the same child who was resurrected. Elisha imbued the child with life from himself. I guess similar to Moshe Rabbeinu Vayotzum in Aruach to make 70s Gainim. It's a similar kind of concept. He puts his mouth on his mouth. It's literally mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. He breathed his Chayus into him and now it's actually like a brand new child. Now we understand why the question comes from the Ben Hashem Namis and not from the child that Eliyahu resurrected. Because there Eliyahu said, There Eliyahu Anavi asked Hashem to re- return the original soul of this child back to the child. And Hashem heard him. Listen to his prayers. And he gave him back his soul and he came back to life. So in the case of Eliyahu, it's not even a question. The child was potentially dead because his neshama left. Now his neshama has come back. He is no longer dead. No tumor. But their question is specifically about the case of Elisha's resurrection of the Shunamis' child. He didn't get his neshama back. We said that the potential for impurity could be because of silicon neshama. Well, he has a permanent silicon neshama. His neshama is not coming back. So therefore, and now we have a question. What is the halachic practicality of this? Does he now express and convey tumah? Does the concept of silicon Hashem get cancelled by brand new life given from somewhere else or not? Listen, you have brilliant ideas, but they're completely irrelevant over here. The bottom line is that only a dead person can exude impurity and not a living person. It's a moot point that his personal neshama didn't return to him. What's the difference? The whole analysis of whether you emphasize the fact that there is now a dead body here or whether you emphasize the fact that there is an neshama that's left is only relevant when the person's dead. Let's be honest, it is a completely irrelevant conversation if you're looking at a living person. 
You can only discuss Tumah with regards to a dead person. This is a living person. Ah, you want to split hairs about why he's alive? Interesting conversation. Has no practical application. So that's why he says this is also an ignorant question. It's got beautiful logic behind it, but absolutely nothing to do with the topic at hand. All of your points that you raise are beautiful and totally irrelevant because we don't need to know about how the neshama left or what impact that had on the body. We have a simple question. Is this person alive now or not alive now? Because the general principle is that a living human cannot create impurity. He's a living human. End of conversation. But you could still ask a question. Now is where it gets really interesting. Right? For those, whatever period of time, those hours, those minutes, whatever it was that he was lying there dead. He was right? According to everybody. We even saw that in the Medrash, that the people who were in the same house as him became Tommy. Now we have a simple question. Where did the Tumah go? Oh, we get it. He's alive now. And you're saying he's not Tommy because he's alive. Fine. Just explain it. How? How did the Tumah dissolve and disappear? There was no ritual. There was no paraduma. What, what Tumah just disappears? So to understand that, let's go back to what the Medrash Yalkut Shimoni said. That the Pasuk is very clear that the only person who becomes Tome is somebody who touches a dead body, not the dead body itself. So therefore, that's the rule. The rule is that he's metame, he, he conveys impurity, but he himself is not impure. And nobody debates that. I'll say that makes absolutely no sense. Well, what about Tuma does make sense? This is all We don't necessarily have to have a logical explanation for how it works, but that's how it is. Like the psikta says, there's no such thing as a mace making impurity, and there's no such thing as the water or the the, the ashes of the paraduma making purity. The whole thing is a gzeras hamelech. Whatever the Abishta decides, that's what makes impurity, doesn't make impurity. Aye, it makes no sense to you. Okay, that's gzeras hamelech. Now we get it, why the question about the Ben Hashanamis, even in the Medrash, was never, is he impure? In the Yalkut it was, does he make others impure? It's not a question whether he's impure, because that's clear in the Pasuk. Likewise, Rabbi Shubin Hananya, in the wisdom of his answer, says that only a dead body can convey impurity, not a living person. Why? Because there's no question about whether the dead body is pure or not. That's Gazeria Sakosov. He's not Tommy. Because the entire conversation start to finish both in the Yalkut Shimoni and in the question of the Anche Alexandria is only whether this Ben Ashunam is now alive would still be able to convey impurity. So we've looked at the first two. Now we have to examine the third one. What's the story about Tchiasa Mesin? 
So what does the Gemara say? Alexandria wanted to know people when they resurrect, will they need to go through the process of the Paraduma or not? Interesting, right? They're not going back to the same question because they have their answer to that question about whether or not they will um, impart Tumah to, to other people because they already know that. Rabbi Shur ben Chanyanya made it very clear to them that a living person cannot share impurity. So, you're now living. There's no impurity. That's sorted. We say to me, so. And even if they still had the question about the Ben Hashanamis, look, he has somebody else's Neshama, does that count? You're not going to have this question about Tchias HaMesim. Tchias HaMesim, the person gets their own Neshama back. As the Gemara says, Hashem brings the Neshama, puts it back into the body, and then judges the whole human being, which is obviously the original human being that was there before. And therefore, whatever might have been the, the, the consequence of the Neshama having been out of the body is now resolved, and everything's fine. So This is where it's brilliant. So what is their question? When they arise from Tchias HaMesim, are they now Tomei from having touched their own dead body? Does the living part of the body, having touched the dead part of the body, become impure at the time of Tchias HaMesim? And therefore the question is, what do we do? Do we have to put them through a purification process or not? And so it's actually a fundamental question. Is the whole principle of touching a dead body and therefore becoming impure only relevant when you touch another person's dead body? Or could it also have bearing on somebody touching their own dead body? Fascinating thought. And in order to understand that, we have to understand how Tachiyas HaMesim works to see why this is even a question. So the whole debate over here hinges on our understanding of how Tchias HaMesim is going to work. There are two possibilities. One possibility is that Tchias HaMesim will take some existing material of the human body and then build that up, like almost taking a DNA sample into a laboratory and rebuilding a human being from that sample. If that is the method, then as everything is being built from this original dead material, it's all touching the dead material, it's all tame because meis metame, and therefore they would have to go through a ritual purification process. Alternatively, or alternatively, is a brand new from scratch creation of a human being. And none of the original body will actually be part of this new resurrected body. If that's the case, then uh, obviously you wouldn't need any purification process because no part of the body touches any part of the body that was dead, and then we're all good. That's why you'll notice that the language of how they asked the question was, do they or don't they need a purification process? Without asking the question, what is the halacha? They know the halacha. Everybody knows clearly, apparently, that even if a person had to 
somehow touch their own dead body, they would become Tomei. And Ashaylib and Metzias, their question is, what's going to happen practically when Mashiach comes? They just want to know, how's it going to work practically? Is it going to be the kind of resurrection that will require ritual purity? Because part of the body touches part of the dead body, or not? To understand this better, we'll understand this better based on a Mishnah that talks about Tumah and how it affects a bed. And based on that understanding, we'll just help clarify the logic of what's going on over here. So what does the Mishnah say? What happens if you have a bed or a couch that is Tomei because Azov was on it? So So if you had one of the long beams that keeps this bed or this couch together, if it broke and got fixed, it's still Tomei. Because the other, there will always be two long beams that are the two sides of the bed. So the other one is still there. The bed still has its its uh, metzius. It, it still is a bed. And so the fact that one part broke and had to be repaired is actually irrelevant. Whereas if the second one also broke and got fixed, well, we say it's like a new bed. New bed means that the old tuma is irrelevant. The only problem with the second one is the second one is attached to the first one, and so it's going to get the secondary impurity from the fact that the first part of the bed, which was broken and fixed, was still tummy. What happens if he didn't get a chance to fix the first beam until the second beam breaks so and now the whole bed is unusable? Now there's no tumma at all, not even a secondary tumma. Why? Because it's a brand new Greek constituted bed from scratch. In other words, this is the principle about Kalim. If you fix one part of the Kali while another part of the Kali was still whole, the Kali still has its identity and retains its Tumah. But if you have the whole thing break completely, then it is completely reconstituted and pure. Now that's going to have a relevance in our understanding of Tchias HaMesim. Is Tchias HaMesim rebuilding something that was partly broken? or rebuilding something that was completely broken. The Gemara Sanhedrin tells us a story, the Caesar said, you say that the dead are going to come to life again. But how is that possible? They've become dust. Can dust live? So his daughter said, you don't have to answer. Gamliel's daughter, you don't have to answer. I'll, I'll answer. We have two artisans, two craftspeople in our town. One of them is able to create things out of water, and the other is able to create things out of mud, out of clay. Which of these two craftspeople do you think is more impressive? Oh my Lord, so the Caesar said, For sure, the one who creates things out of water. Wow, what an incredible thing. So she said, So don't you think if one who could create out of water, he could certainly create out of clay, meaning, meaning that Debishta can make a human being out of whatever he chooses. The fact that the person has completely de- decomposed and disappeared, so what? They can make. 
This is the one we're going to focus on a little bit more. In the same conversation, they quote from the Yeshiva of Rabbi Shmuel, from a glass vessel. Think about a glass which is created by a human being. If the glass smashes, you can reconstitute it, you can re-blow it, you can make a new glass. How much more so than a human being who is constituted out of Hashem's spirit, not human spirit, for sure you should be able to recreate. The two different arguments that are offered over here about how Tchiyas HaMesim works are actually giving us two different insights aligned with the two possibilities. Is Tchiyas HaMesim taking existing material and rebuilding the body, in which case the living part of the body still touches the dead part of the body? Or are we talking about over here where the uh, person is reconstituted from scratch? So if I'm going to say, like Rabbi Gamaliel's daughter, that they could build out of water or out of clay, what I'm basically saying is there is an existing material that the body is built from. This part of the dead body that the new re- resurrected body is created out of. That tells you there's a negia. The living part of the body will touch that original dead part of the body, and therefore it will be tame, and it will need to go through the ritual of purity. Whereas if I go with the opinion of Rabbi Shmuel's yeshiva that says it's like a broken glass, well, the broken glass is in no way a reflection or representation of the original glass. The original metzius is gone. The halacha about a glass uh, item is that if it breaks, it is no longer considered an item. So if it had been a tame glass, it'd be 100% toher now. So maybe that's how Along the same lines of trying to build a brand new thing out of broken glass. With a new item that you have constituted has absolutely nothing anymore to do with the original one that you had. And if that's the case, if you're going to go with that perspective, there is no such thing as one part of the body touching another part of the body and therefore being contaminated by it. And therefore, when they get up at they need no further uh, purification. Now you understand why Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananiah replies to him, not saying, I don't know. He says, we have to wait and see. What he's saying to them is, when Mashiach comes, and then we'll see what actually happens, which way Tchiyas HaMesim works, and then we'll know what the Haloch is. But then there was a second version of what Rabbi Shabbat Hananya answered them about the Tchiyas HaMesim of the future. Another version is that when Moshe Rabbeinu comes back with them, then Moshe Rabbeinu will explain, well, that's the implication. It doesn't even say those words. According to this version, 
the question was not about the general principle of Rather, because we know that Rabbi Shur ben Hananya's opinion is that will be rebuilt from the Luzbon. So then that shows that the living body is built off the part of the body that was dead and touches it, and that's Tumas Maga, and it needs to be purified. According to the second version, the Ansh Alexandria had a very specific question about the generation who lived in the Midbar and how things will be for them in Tchiasa Mesa. Why is that an issue? Because there's a machloikas about that. Right at the end of Gemara Sanhedrin, there's a Mishnah, and it talks about various people who don't have a chelak in Oilam Abba. And there's a machloikas. Rabbi Kiva says that the people of the generation of the desert are not coming back in Oilam Abba. And Rabbi Eliezer says they are. Gemara and Baba Basra tells all these stories, Rabbi Barbachan and all these incredible visions that he had, and he met a person in the desert who was able to tell you different sands and what they were all from, and he got this fellow to take him to see, whatever that means, it's, uh, most of those stories are allegorical, but he saw the people of the Durham Midbar lying as if they were intoxicated. That implies that they have a chedek and oilam as Tosva says on that Gemara. They have an opportunity to come back. Okay, so let's go with that opinion that the Anshe Midbar are coming back in Tchias HaMesim. Now we have to understand. So there are two opinions, generally speaking, about how it works, how Tchias HaMesim works. The one opinion, as we've seen, Rabbi Shurban Hananya takes this opinion, is that there's this etzim luz, this one bone that never disappears, and we're going to be reconstituted from that bone. On that, the Pasuk says, It says that they will come to life, not that they will be recreated. That goes with the opinion that we're not building a brand new body, as we've already discussed, but rather taking an existing part of the body, the luz, and expanding it out and reconstituting the body from that. That's one opinion. And the other opinion is, Pirkat Rabbi Eliezer says that there'll be like this decomposed material, like literally a ladle full of decomposed material that will mix with the sand and create a human being, like you take yeast and put it into a dough in order for the bread to rise. Now, based on that, let's go back to Rabbi Akiva's opinion, who at face value said they have no right to Olam Abba, and we'll understand it differently. What is his opinion? That they won't have an etzem luz. Everybody else, how's the triyas amesim going to work? Take the etzem luz, build it up, build it up, and that's how you're going to get a person. But the Masei Midbar, they're going to disappear completely. Avol. But... The Ibish will still find a way to take this kind of spoonful of their decomposed material, which no longer really has anything to do with them, and reconstitute them afresh. 
According to this, that was actually the question, the third question of Anche Alexandria. What will the nature of their resurrection be like? The people of the Dera Midbar, what will their resurrection be like? Will they still have the etzem luz and like all the other uh, people of Tchias Amesim, they'll be rebuilt from the etzem luz, in which case the living part of their body will have touched even the tiniest amount, even a body is enough to make tummy of the dead part of their body and they will need to be um, purified once Mashiach comes. They'll be tummy because they touched their own body. Or are they going to be like Pirkei that Rabbi Eliezer said, reconstituted out of this little spoonful of of material, decomposed material, which doesn't make somebody Tomei from touching it. The only way you could become Tomei is to be under the same canopy as that item. And even if it was under an oil, as the Rambam famously says, there are so many other requirements before it could become Tomei. It would have to be somebody who was buried completely naked, in a marble cast um, uh, coffin, or glass, and the whole person would have to be whole. Anyway, it's an unlikely scenario. So that's their question. Do the Masei Midbar have the same kind of Tchiyas Amesim as everybody else, or do they completely disappear from their old selves and get rebuilt out of this, this uh, spoonful of whatever you want to call it, biological material? So his answer to them was, when Moshe comes back with them, not that Moshe will answer the question. What's he saying? What is the Moshel that you could compare Moshe Rabbeinu being barred from Eretz Yisrael? It's like a king who, uh, who had a, a, a shepherd and the shepherd was looking after his sheep. The sheep were, were stolen. The shepherd wanted to come back into the palace. The king said to him, you can't do that. I'll say, you're the one then who stole the, 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 um, the sheep. Likewise, Hashem said to Moshe, Is it going to be to your credit that you took a nation out of Mitzrayim, left them to die in the desert, and you're going to take a new nation into Israel? Everybody will think you've completely discarded the people of, the, of your generation, the Dor HaMidbar, and they don't even have a Chelek Therefore, the Major says, you experience, share their pain, and share their return. So that implies that because Moshe Rabbeinu was the faithful shepherd of that generation while they were alive, and so much was he their faithful shepherd that not only did he provide for them spiritually, bringing them the Torah, but he provided for them physically, food, shelter, protection, etc. All of 
So Moshe Rabbeinu retains that responsibility to come back and to lead them back, really, in the time of Tchiyas HaMesim, when they're back in their bodies. That was Rabbi Yishob ben Hananiah's answer. The fact that Moshe Rabbeinu will return together with them. That is the answer. If Moshe Rabbeinu comes back together with them, let's see, let's see what happens when Moshe comes. If Moshe Rabbeinu comes together with them, that's a sign that they deserve Tchiyas HaMesim. And that implies that their original bodies still deserved and then we have the same issue that you have with everybody else and they have to be purified. Whereas if Moshe Rabbeinu is not part of their Tchia, then that implies that they, as they were, did not deserve Tchiyas HaMesim. So the only way that they're coming back is from this Tarvad of this little spoonful of biological material, which means they're brand new people. Brand new people means that they don't need to be purified. But after this whole explanation of the Gemara Nida, we can go back to the Yalkut Shimoni and explain. Now we understand what the Yalkut Shimoni was telling us that is so amazing and surprising. The first thing that the Medrash said was that the Torah is making it clear. A mace causes Tumah, but isn't Tameh. Surprising? Yes, but that's Gzeres HaKosuf. And therefore, if that's the Gzeres HaKosov, that only a mace can give Tuma, then a Chai cannot give Tuma. But then the Medrash Yalkut Shimoni says, okay, we get it. Now we know that a mace shares Tuma, and a mace isn't Tame, and a live person doesn't share Tuma. But now here comes an interesting story. The Ben Ashunamis is not Tomei. It's no surprise to us that he cannot express Tuma to others once he comes alive. Because we already know that from the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, Not by somebody who's alive. The Chiddush over here is, The Chiddush of the Medrash Yalkut is, that here's a person who was in a state of death and now came alive. Surely his body touched the dead body of himself. And we now know that if somebody touches their own dead body, they're actually Tomei. So the Chiddush of the Ben Ashunamis is, he's not Tomei. And where do we learn this from? From the fact that it's Nagea Bemeis, meaning, So the emphasis over here is that you actually have to touch the dead body. So it, it almost implies like his Tchiyas Amesim is perhaps different to the regular Tchiyas Amesim. Regular Tchiyas Amesim is a Luz, and then you build on it. So the Chai that's being built is touching the Luz that is dead. Here, this person, this Ben Ashenamis, was dead, then he became alive. There's no real like the live touching the dead. When he's dead, he's dead. When he's alive, he's alive. Now it's interesting that they chose only to ask the question about whether you need the purification process, only about in the future, and they didn't raise the question about the Ben Hashanamis, which actually... Uh, that, that was their first question. That, that's when it should have come up. 
Because there's a fundamental difference between the Ben Ashunames who didn't touch himself alive while half dead, whereas Chiasamesim, the Mesim, will have touched the dead part of their body. The only time that it's relevant to ask the question about did you coming to life touch the part of you that wasn't alive, it's only relevant in the future. It's very clear, as Toysvus makes out, that the Ben Hashanamis, we don't even ask the question whether he has to purify himself. Because his body did not change in the slightest, and therefore there's no reason why you would think that his body would need to be purified. To say it slightly differently. The kind of resurrection that the Ben Hashanamis had is not the same kind of resurrection that will be in the future. The resurrection in the future could be the construction of a body out of a fundamental piece. Whereas he is. His experience is he was dead, now he's alive. The same he, the same person with all ten fingers and toes. And especially when you consider that the Ben Hashanamis is not like normal resurrection. He's not even getting his own Neshama back. So he's really a brand new person. Therefore, it's a, it's a non-starter to even ask the question about is he impure from having touched himself because it's not the practicality of it. And now one other little point that the Rebbe makes. Why Dafka is this a story that centers on the people of Alexandria? What happened to them? And what do they really want to know? What were they really asking over here? So what happened is Alexandria was a big city in Egypt and it was a controversial city actually because Jews went there at a particular point in time and didn't want to go back to Eretz Yisrael because they were living in the lap of luxury in Alexandria. Now the haloch is clear. You're not allowed to go settle in Egypt, even in Alexandria. So what were these people thinking? Originally, when Jews went to Alexandria, it was a completely temporary thing. They had to escape what was happening in Eretz Yisrael. That's why they went there, and it was never their intention to be there long term. And even though they got stuck there, and they didn't leave too quickly, they wanted to look at everything from its original state. So the original state of going to Alexandria was temporary, so they wanted to see their entire stay there over generations as temporary. That's why they asked these three questions, because they really wanted to have clarity. Does the original state of something affect its long-term state? So you can hear their bias kind of, Coming through, or the ignorance, coming through in the story, in the question. The Aishas Lloyd was originally a woman, a human, right? So, so, so what if she's a pile of salt now? But she was originally a human. Surely that's what we should consider. Like us, we were originally just temporary residents of Alexandria. Surely that's what we should consider. Says Rabbi Shobichananya, no. <laughs> Fact is, right now, she's a pillar of salt.
Okay, I'll call Pani Ben Hashanamis. Okay, fine. Let's at least look at the story of the Shanamis, the, ben, the son of the Shanamis. Here's a person who died and he came back and he's still in the same body, right? So surely we should look at how he was originally. He was a body. Or at the very least, we should compare ourselves to Trias Amesim, where the whole person, the Shama and Guf, is reconstituted. So, so, so to us, right? We really are people who from Eretz Israel. That's where we, we, we really belong. So they're also they asked the same question. So what he went through at Trias Amesim? He was originally a person. People get Tame. So what if a person uh, got a brand new body? And a brand new, well, not a brand new neshama, got the neshama back. They wanted to have the answer suit them. They wanted the answer to be Tomei. They wanted to hear that a person keeps their status even after things have changed. And they didn't get their answer, actually. As the Mishnah tells us in Perk every single year has a chelek in Olam Haba. And therefore, kulam Everybody's coming back for tchias amesim physically. So now the Gemara seemed to end off saying that when everybody comes back, we're going to need to be purified. But there is a way out. We could say because we learn Torah nowadays. Even though each of us has the etzem luz and we're going to be built from the etzem luz, and we said that that's a magas tuma and a maga tuma, and therefore you're going to have a problem. Because we have an expression that says any person who engages with the light of Torah, the light of Torah will resurrect them. Or another version is the dew of Torah will, will uh, resurrect them. So therefore, we can say, If the reason we earn is because of our limud ha-toira, our limud ha-toira will purify our bodies at the time of the tria, and we won't need a subsequent purification. I suppose we could say, like Rabbi Shubman Hananya says, right? Then, let's see it. Let's see it. And then we'll know exactly how it is supposed to work. It should happen. Take it from Yad Mamish.